Good morning and welcome to another edition of Orange County Catholic Radio. We're coming to you on AM 1000 through the good offices of Immaculate Heart Radio. And we're here in our studios on the campus of Christ Cathedral in Garden Grove. I'm Patrick Mott. We've got a very eclectic show for you today. With Lent approaching, we're going to talk about different forms of prayer, including some you may not have considered or experienced. We'll also be talking about some of our favorite guys, the Jesuits, with one of our favorite Jesuit guys, Father Robert Spitz. We'll take a look at the life and works and spirituality of one of the great spiritual writers of the last century, Thomas Merton. Right now, we're going to begin our hour by taking a look at a few things all of us have encountered at one time or another as Catholics. That's misconceptions, misperceptions, maybe flat-out false beliefs that maybe non-Catholics hold about the Church and the Catholic faithful. Here to help us navigate is Father Jerry Horan. Father Jerry is a Servite priest and is the Episcopal Vicar for Faith Formation for the Diocese of Orange. Father, thank you very much for joining us today. Pleased to be with you. Got a quote here. There are not 100 people in the United States who hate the Catholic Church, but there are millions who hate what they wrongly perceive the Catholic Church to be. Archbishop Fulton Sheen said that. He's absolutely right, isn't he? I think so. I think that's a good quote. And... There's not really a reason to hate the church because what the church is about is a gospel, good news. It's about love. And that's not something to hate. But what causes hate, I think, are some judgments, preconceptions, or misconceptions about other people. Well, how do you think these misconceptions about the church gain traction? Are there people out there who are just simply disposed to believe the worst about the church, or is it something else? You know, I think a lot of them go way back to the time of the Reformation. And the Reformation was a very painful division in the church, and people planted their feet very firmly. Even the Catholic Church was pointing fingers and saying anathema sit, anathema sit, and making judgments. You're not part of the church. If you're anathema, you're outside of the community of believers. And I think that was going on on both sides of the argument. And people were planting their feet. And you know, sometimes when you get into an argument, especially if you don't have enough of a basis or enough knowledge to make the argument, what starts to happen is you start arguing in an ad hominem way. You point your fingers at the person. The old type of thing like, your mother wears army boots. Well, (laughs) nobody's mother wears army boots, but that's kind of a way to get your opponent and say, not only is your opinion wrong, you're no good. Yeah, the idea being just to set your opponent back on his heels. I think that's you know, in in kind of a characteristic sort of a way. That is what we're talking about. And I think a lot of the... There was a division at the time of the Protestant Reformation between a Catholic Church that was holding tight to doctrinal and liturgical and spiritual practices, and there were a group of Reformers who were moving a new direction. They were taking a new perspective on uh, on Scripture. They were saying that only the Word of God mattered. And so anybody who had a different perspective on such matters was kind of characterized as an opponent or antagonist. Well, let's take a look at some of the more common misconceptions that are out there. This one is probably number one. Catholics aren't really Christians. Now, for Catholics, that's kind of silly. But, you know, where did this come from? Well, I think it goes to that 
understanding of Scripture that seems to be at the heart of the Reformation moment, that some of the perspective of the Reformers was a very literal and uh, dogmatic kind of adherence to the letter of the Scripture, and they began to argue that if you weren't following the Scriptures the way they read it and understood it, whether that was right or wrong, that therefore you weren't really following Christ. You weren't part of the community of the believers. Of course, on the Catholic side of the question, our perspective is really very different because the origin of the sacraments, even the collation of the books of the Bible, all came through the tradition of our church community. And so they date way back to the beginning and even to the time of Christ, the legacy of the papacy and the the whole notion of papal succession and the, the lineage of church leadership back to the time of Peter gives us a clear connection to Jesus Christ himself. Well, here's another one that has to do with a pope, and this is uh, one that a lot of Catholics will recognize. Lots of people think we believe the pope can't make a mistake. The old idea of papal infallibility extends to every part of the Pope's life. Pope Francis can't make a typo. Pope Francis can't burn his toast. How about this one? How do you explain that? Well, those those perceptions are all very exaggerated, really. Of course, we have the tradition of looking to the, uh, the Bishop of Rome, uh, dating back to the time of St. Peter as having primacy among the churches. But the whole notion of infallibility doesn't come into uh, church practice in a defined way until the 1800s, the First Vatican Council in 1870. And uh, that council really made a much more limited statement than is characterized in those other notions. The the First Vatican Council said that when the Pope speaks ex cathedra, from the seat of Peter, from his chair, when the Pope is speaking in his role as the leader of the universal church, in the definition of a doctrine or morals, then the Pope is infallible. So the Catholic Church has never held that uh, that he was a good cook or that he was uh, capable in the kitchen or that he couldn't make a mistake when he sat down to a typewriter. Those are all kind of very exaggerated uh, characterizations of um, of the truth of the Church's teaching of uh, papal infallibility. Here's another one. Catholics are idol worshipers. We've all heard that one. That's a big one. When we pray to images of the Blessed Virgin and the saints, we are accused of worshiping graven images, uh, which people will tell you is a big sin going all the way back to Moses. But what are we actually doing when we're doing that? Well, the Church looks to Mary and the saints as sort of the heroes of our faith community. They are individuals of great achievement, great sacrifice, great virtue, uh, and we look to them as our companions in prayer. We pray to them to ask their companionship and their help in praying to God. The uh, it, it would certainly be wrong to be suggesting that we look at them as gods themselves. And, and again, it's a, it's a characterization or misrepresentation that 
really has no basis in fact. We look to them as our spiritual heroes, our companions in faith, and we invite them into our spiritual lives to give us uh, strength and hope as, as we face our own challenges. So we venerate the saints, we look to them as models of help, and we invite them to be our assistance in the challenges that we face. And, and what role do the actual images of the saints, say, in a church play? You've got statues, you've got paintings, you have other artistic renderings. We are not worshiping those things, are we? What role do they play in our prayer life? That's an interesting question because from very early times, in fact, if we go to the catacombs, we see that the Christians, the earliest Christians, decorated the places of worship. And so the first piece of the answer to your question is that they were artistic embellishment to help make the the place of prayer special and honored. And so the early Christians, whether it was a symbol of Christ or the early representation of Jesus as a shepherd or uh, some of some more developed images of other saints or martyrs, they were images of aesthetic beauty to remind them of their faith. And so the, the first answer is aesthetic. Secondly, because the relationship to those saints was very powerful and sank deep into the, uh, the spiritual life of the individual, a lot of uh, emotion or, uh, or care tended to be placed upon that particular art object. So the church placed Art in its uh, in its places, whether it's carved statues or frescoes or just even carvings in the wall, to make the place beautiful. Because to be worthy of worship, it needed to be special and beautiful. But that beauty also drew special attention and uh, and what became part of the prayer of individuals. And so, touching the statue in a particular way or uh, or expressing emotional or tangible uh, connection to that piece of artwork is kind of a, a devotional act that kind of crept into Christian devotion. We've got about a minute left here, but uh, finally, what can we do or say when we encounter someone who may be misinformed about Catholic teaching and the Catholic faith and comes up with one of these assertions that we've been talking about? How can we gently correct them. I think the the important thing is, and it's not always easy for us as Catholics to to stand up for our faith, but to uh, to challenge the ideas that when uh, that that we hear as wrong. To say no, I don't think you have the whole story. No, I think there's more you need to learn about that. I think you really need to do your homework and uh, and research that question a little bit. Because, as I said, a lot of uh, misconceptions were formed centuries ago and, uh, and really don't have a basis in fact. So I think it's a matter of challenging the people you're in conversation with to do their homework. Father Jerry Horan, thank you so much for being with us this afternoon. It's been very informative and a lot of fun. We'll be back shortly with Deacon Frank Chavez, who's going to take us beyond the Our Father and give us some good ideas about different types of prayer for Lent and for every day. Stay with us. 
the Orange County Catholic newspaper is now available for weekly home delivery. The official newspaper of the Diocese of Orange seeks to illuminate and animate the journey of faith for Catholics within the Diocese of Orange. Through timely sharing of news, commentary, and feature content in an engaging, accessible, and compelling format, please call 1-877-627-7009 or visit OCCatholic.com to subscribe. Deacon Frank Chavez is the director of the Office of the Diaconate for the Diocese of Orange. He serves as deacon at Christ Our Savior Church in Santa Ana and has said a prayer or two in his time. Many. Deacon Frank, welcome. Hi. And thanks so much for being with us. We're talking about prayer. We learn rote prayers as kids, the Our Father, the Hail Mary, so on. And we also learn the various prayers that are said at every Mass. Can we look on these as the foundations of our prayer life, these prayers that we memorize and live with most of our lives? That's a good word for them, foundational prayers. A lot of us carry them into life today because, I mean, they can be a tremendous comfort for us, especially when we don't know what to say. You go to those prayers that you learned from your childhood. I remember saying the rosary every night with my mom, with all the kids, and that's a tremendous, maybe we didn't like it at that time, but we certainly uh, appreciate nowadays. Who said the rosary every night? And that comes in handy nowadays to uh, share the rosary with folks at at certain times. So, yeah, Well, that brings me to this question. Where does the rosary fit in in most Catholic lives? There are some people, like your family, that, that said it every day. There are other Catholics out there who are observant Catholics. They go to Mass on mm-hmm. Sunday and everything, but they never say the rosary. It's very central to the faith, yet why do you think some people are attracted to it and others can leave it alone? Because they're attracted to it, I believe, based on their own spirituality. To them personally, it's an important prayer. Nowadays, there's a divine mercy rosary. There's a scriptural rosary. There's a, I like the idea, too, of that, you know, like at vigils and uh, funerals. We don't know what to say. So we grab that, and there's a tactile thing, too, because we touch it. People have them in the little thumb rosary on their car, and you can actually drive and say the rosary at the same time. So it's a great prayer, but it's not for everybody. A lot of folks, uh, like you said, Pat, that have other forms of prayer in their life, and they respect the rosary and they understand it, like my wife, And uh, but it's not her particular way of praying. So, And that's fine. We all have different spiritualities. We all have a different way to talk to God. Does the repetition of prayer in the rosary uh, add to the experience for a lot of people? I think it does. I think it does. In fact, when I lead a rosary for particularly at a funeral and there's folks who aren't Catholic there, I even tell them, you know, we're going to go on and on. And, (laughs) you know, it's like a continuous thing. But I invite them, whatever you need to pray, whatever you need to bring to this prayer time, do that in your own way, because we're going to be saying things over and over again. The repetition is a wonderful way to, it's like our mantra in a sense, you know, we just Mm -hmm. keep saying it and eventually settle into a wonderful rhythm to it. It's an aid to contemplation. It's an aid to contemplation, very much so. Right. Let's take a look at something that I think a lot of Catholics uh, may not be familiar with, a form of prayer called Lectio Divina. This is a monastic form of prayer that's based on the scriptures. Can you tell me how it works and what the benefits are? Sure, tremendous benefits. A lot of us are discovering in formation like the deacons or pre- or lay people. The Lectio is a wonderful prayer because we pray 
scripture. You take a particular scripture, like uh, the prodigal son or whatever, and you just spend a lot of time with it. You read it either to yourself or in a group and concentrate on the words. Ask yourself which particular words are speaking to you. And then the cool thing is that you put yourself in that situation. Who are you? Are you an observer? Are you the son? Are you the father? Are you the angel? And how does that feel? What is God telling you through that? And uh, through that prayer, you take particular word. You can take that into your day and into your life. It's a great way to pray, the Lexio. And different people, again, have different ways of doing it, but it's praying Scripture, making Scripture relevant to your particular life, to your particular spirituality. It's a great way to pray. And I have seen Lexio Divina prayed uh, not necessarily by individuals, but uh, in groups. Yes. Oh, it's groups. I think it's even better. I love to pray in groups because you can listen to how the impact is of other folks compared to the impact of a particular Scripture that that you have, or it's the same one. And you know, other people will see things, smell things, hear things that you're not in tune with, but it's a great thing to share. So I think a group Lexio is a great way to pray. Fantastic. Mm -hmm. Is is there a way that um, you might gather these people together, uh, just maybe a casual conversation after Mass, say, hey, I'd like to get together a Lexio Divina prayer group. Sure, and, and, sure. and people would, sure. would say, well, what's that? And you could uh, fill them in. Absolutely. And what a great thing to take the Scripture from that particular liturgy, that Mass, either before Sunday or after Sunday, and really uh, dive into it using Lexio as a tool to do that. So, Excellent. You really learn Scripture that way. Well, now, here's here's one that I think a lot of people will either love or may uh, <laughs> be a little uh, hesitant to get into, meditative prayer. Mm-hmm. This is where a lot of Catholics might draw the line. As soon as they hear the word meditation, they might think things are getting a little too touchy-feely yeah, or the Maharishi's about to walk in the door. <laughs> what is it really, and what does it involve? Or they say, that's a Protestant thing. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's or, a or, Middle Eastern thing. Or it's, yeah, it's, uh, it's too Buddhist for us. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. It's wonderful. Yeah. Uh, meditation. You think of a meditative prayer sometimes. They have a mantra. Mm-hmm. You know, they repeat. But why can't we say Jesus over and over again? Sure. Why can't we say mercy over again? Why can't we use love your neighbor, love yourself, love others over and over again in, in deep meditation and quiet? What a wonderful thing to quiet ourselves. I mean, we're crazy the way we live our lives. So in meditation, you can just stop. In many, many spiritual communities, it's a very much a part of Ignatian spirituality, Franciscan spirituality, Benedictine spirituality. They use meditation a lot. Don't be afraid of it. But again, again, if it's not your thing, that's fine. Well, there's no hocus pocus to no it or hocus anything pocus. like that. It's not like you're putting no, no, yourself no. into a trance. No, 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 no. No, that's something else. Yeah, that's psychoanalysis stuff. So it is. It's what it's what these days I think a lot of people are calling mindfulness. Just, Mind, ooh, really? Yeah, just you know, interesting. Just, just a slowing down, you know, mm-hmm. uh, centering yourself. Centering we're, we're, yourself. We're getting touchy feely already. <laughs> uh, it's taking just taking deep breaths and right. just trying to relax and concentrate on right. the thought before you. And s- certainly those could be tools in meditation mm-hmm. to quiet ourselves, to center ourselves. But we center and quiet ourselves in the Lord, in Jesus, in our Scripture. Sure. Can even be part of the Lexio. Yes. To spend some time in 
I think it's meditato or something that they use it. Oh, yeah. Me- me- meditatio. Meditatio. Oratio. Oratio. Right. In, in Lexia Divina. Yeah. Or just spend time with it. Mm-hmm. Like I said, we're too busy trying to say the next word or thinking of what I have to do next or you know, the way we live our lives. So what a great thing to rest in the Lord. Right. Uh-huh. Right. We forget a lot. <laughs> we sure do. St. Paul wrote this, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. He said that in his letter to the Thessalonians. And it sounds, in that sense, kind of like a tall order. Pray without ceasing. Uh, but how about praying in the car, in the sure. shower in the morning, when Absolutely. you're mowing the lawn, while you're doing the grocery shopping? Is that possible? Absolutely. I walk every day. I walk two or three miles during the week and maybe five on weekends, except Sundays usually. What a great time for prayer. I'm outside. Mm-hmm. I'm in creation. And I can really be clear. This morning's walk was fabulous. I even had some ideas. Whoa. <laughs> Hopefully it came from the Lord. But <laughs> through prayer, absolutely. At the car, I told you, people at car, when they drive their car, it's a great yeah. place for the rosary. Pay attention to your driving. Oh, yeah. But that's why the thumb rosaries are wonderful. Oh, so, yeah. Yeah. Meditate, you know, quiet, uh, just music. So if you're mowing the lawn or doing some work around the house to have some spiritual music. That's a way, a great way to pray. Well, and there are all kinds of uh, CDs and tapes yes. and such available uh, that you can listen go, to in the car. Go to a Catholic bookstore. Oh, yeah. Like here in Orange County, we have Paulus Press. Yeah. They've got a ton of CDs and which help you with prayer, with meditation, with to make this a part of your life, no matter what you're doing, you know. And I think there are a lot of tapes and CDs of uh, praying the rosary with yes. uh, Pope John Paul II. What a great thing. Uh, things things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, something that uh, will not necessarily take your mind off of your driving. No, but, no, you no. Know, will probably even put you in a little more of a contemplative and a state where you can concentrate even uh, and won't, more and, closely. And won't be angry when somebody cuts you off. That's right. That's right. <laughs> I want to wind up with this. Sure. Is it a good thing to have a specific place in your house where you go to pray? I mean, we've been talking about praying all over the place, but now you're in your home. Is it a nice thing where you can have a specific place to pray? Yes. A prayer corner. We have empty nests at our house now. So we're dedicating one of the rooms, now the kids' old bedrooms. We have to redesign it uh, as a prayer corner. People have a place in their garden, outdoors, again, in creation around the trees. That's a great idea. Remember, it's focus. It's quiet yourself. It's a place where you return to. And I think eventually that would become special for all people in that household. When grandkids come to visit or when if you, there's still kids in, their, in the household, this is a special place. And it reminds us always that we can go to the room. Just to be quiet. And you don't have to have a lot of furniture. Oh, no. You don't have to have a kneeler. You don't have to build no, no, a niche no. or anything like that. A Maybe. little couch, a chair, a, a crucifix, a, uh, some religious pictures. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Maybe, maybe a candle or two. A candle here, or two. Here and there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I ran across something the other day. I may buy it yet. <laughs> it, it's, it, it was just too good. I don't know if you recall a movie that was out not long ago called The Monuments Man. It was about, yes. uh, yeah, it was about a group of uh, men who found and saved a huge amount of plundered art mm-hmm. uh, during World, World War, War II, II in Europe. And one of the pieces of art that was a focal point was the Bruges Madonna and Child Ooh, uh, the, by, by Michelangelo. And there is available out there 
online from several sources a reproduction of the Bruges Madonna wow. and Child. One large enough where you can put it on a pedestal in your backyard and make a little prayer niche like that. Is that something that you can build a whole garden around? Yes, by all means. We have a France uh, statue of Francis in, the, in our backyard with... Uh, in particular, that's a succulent area, mm-hmm. and he's perfect there. You know, it's sometimes either just sitting outside and um, thinking of what he's thinking and let him teach me how to be a better person. Big thanks to Deacon Frank Chavez for joining us and giving us so many good ideas about integrating prayer into our daily lives. When we come back, ever thought about the Jesuits and done a Butch Cassidy and wondered who are those guys? <laughs> Father Robert Spitzer is here to tell us, so don't go away. S.J. after Father Robert Spitzer's name stands for Society of Jesus. We call them the Jesuits and they're good guys to know. They also are typically very accomplished individuals. Father Robert, for example, he's a philosopher, educator, author, speaker, and the retired president of Gonzaga University, the Jesuit College in Spokane, Washington. He entered the Oregon province of the Jesuits in 1974, was ordained nine years later. He's written numerous books and articles, gives dozens of speeches each year, and still manages to serve as the rector of J. Sarah High School in San Juan Capistrano. Currently, he's our upstairs neighbor in the Tower of Hope, where he works as the president of the Magis Center of Reason and Faith. That is a nonprofit organization he founded and that's dedicated to developing educational materials on the complementary nature of science, philosophy, and faith. Father, thanks so much for taking time to be with us today. It's a real pleasure to be with you. Well, what makes a Jesuit a Jesuit? How is a Jesuit different from a Franciscan, say, or a diocesan priest? Well, uh, Jesuits um, uh, were originally structured around a vow of mobility. And, um, you know, originally uh, a lot of the uh, more uh, contemplative groups or other groups pretty much had various places where they would locate and and um, the Jesuits uh, pledged that they would uh, do anything, go anywhere, where the, the need was the greatest and where the Pope uh, wanted us to go. And so we had this idea of the Majus, which literally means the even more. And, and uh, that, that's a huge animating spirit. And St. Ignatius Loyola put it this way, you know, if, if you want to know what you're, what you're to do with your life, just ask, the first question is, what is the greatest universal need? for the church, for the kingdom of God. Number two, is anybody else really doing it? So if somebody else is doing it, great. We don't need to do it. We need to do things that nobody else is doing or wants to do. And the third thing he said was, well, do you have enough you know, qualifications uh, to, to do this well? And so if the answer was yes, yes, and yes, basically, um, that's the spirit that, that moves the Majus. That's the spirit that moves the Jesuit. And, and I think St. Ignatius Loyola just wanted people who would be really responsive like that, but also who wanted to be companions of Jesus, wanted to follow Jesus with a, a truly humble heart, with a truly compassionate heart. And so it's these two animating factors, the, the, the wanting to be a companion, 
a society of Jesus, right? Which really means companions of Jesus, compania. That's the idea of, of being companions of Jesus in the humility, the, the, the compassion of Jesus, and also at the same time to want to do the majus, to serve the kingdom, to serve God, to serve the church. Ad maiorum dei gloriam, for the greater glory of God. Those two things combined, I think, really represent what a Jesuit is. I mean, obviously, that's going to lead us into the world of uh, uh, the intellectual life. It's going to lead us into the world of evangelization. It's going to lead us into the world of the poorest of the poor. It's going to lead us into just all kinds of interesting worlds where the majus needs to be served in accordance with that that compassion and humility uh, of Jesus, who is, of course, our leader. There's an old saw that I have uh, heard from Jesuits over the years that uh, ordination is a Jesuit's reward for a lifetime of faithful service. Uh, Why is the Jesuit period of formation so long? You know, uh, St. Ignatius Loyola really wanted to make sure that we were formed well enough to be free to serve wherever the highest need called us. So, you know, first of all, Jesuits are meant to interact with the culture. Um, So our whole objective is to meet the culture where it is, to meet the evangelization effort wherever it is. And that really requires, if you're going to meet the culture, you have to speak the culture's language. You have to have the culture's categories. And like at the the Maja Center of Reason and Faith, what we're constantly doing, we speak science, we speak philosophy of science, we speak about the issues of consciousness. That's where the culture is. That's where uh, you're going to, the rubber's going to meet the road with atheism, agnosticism, secularism, materialism, nihilism, and all the other isms uh, that that are really perplexing not only our young people, but our adults as well. Uh, That's where we were meant to be. So what's that going to require? It's going to require a really strong ground in your spirituality, including the spiritual exercise of St. Ignatius. That's the novitiate, the first period of our formation. The second is you're going to have to really know and understand not only philosophy in the traditional sense, though certainly that we want to know the tradition and history of philosophy, especially in the church. But in addition to that, we want to know where is the culture? What's the culture saying? What are the competitors? What do we? Where do we have to match wits? Where do we? What do we have to do? And in order to do that, you really do have to get a very broad and deep philosophical background, knowledge to defend the faith, as well as the sciences and the humanities. So Pope Francis, for example, uh, he had a master's in chemistry. You know, he was in the sciences. He was already, uh, you know, at that juncture. So essentially, we wanted that. Then, of course. Regency, which for a lot of people say, well, it sounds like just you go to work for a while in a high school or a college or some other apostolate for a few years. Why do you do that? Because, of course, St. Ignatius wanted us to see, can you handle just being a servant of God 24-7, where people are just knocking on your door, you know, constantly trying to, you know, make you, you know, go, go to the next level for them? Do you have the collegiality? Do you have the relationship ability and also the learning and the theoretical ability? It was, it's a test, but it's also a test for you to see whether the Jesuit vocation is yours. And then finally, theology, we require four years of it um, because, of course, of the grounding. And many, many Jesuits go on for a PhD, though they do so after ordination. So um, it's pretty long formation, but it's worth uh, every minute of it. 
We're here with Father Robert Spitzer talking about the Jesuits. The order has had a huge light cast on it in the last couple of years with the election of Pope Francis, who, of course, you've mentioned is a <laughs> Jesuit. What, what traits do you see in the Holy Father that uh, you can identify that people might recognize as typically or particularly influenced by the Jesuits. Oh, well, the first two traits I mentioned earlier on. I mean, if Pope Francis is not a man of the Magus, the even more, I don't know who is. Uh, if he's not a man who's asking himself those three questions, you know, uh, especially, you know, what's the greatest universal need? He knows he has to bring a lot of people uh, who have been disenfranchised or feel disaffected back into the church. I mean, this man is reaching out a a lot uh, to do that. This has got Magis written all over it. Uh, the second thing, you know, is he definitely has asked himself, has, is anybody else doing this? I think he feels himself filling in a gap that needs to be filled in. And of course, does he have the qualification? He has it. Does uh, the second point I talked about, the, the companionship with Jesus, humble Jesus, compassionate, right? Does he have that? Oh, absolutely, he has that sense. He reaches out uh, to the poorest of the poor. He has the compassionate heart uh, of Jesus. He has uh, the humility, much better than I have the humility of Jesus. I mean, the, the man really is amazingly uh, humble. And, um, you know, uh, amidst all that, he just loves being with people where they are. Are I mean I just remember that incident you know where you know he goes to this uh, village in Italy there for uh, some kind of a Christmas festivity I think it was and one of these women says gee you know how would you like to be a, a real good shepherd and he goes well what do you mean by that well here just put this nice little lamb on your shoulders like the good shepherd and he's looking at this lamb and of course he's worried you know what that lamb might do the moment the he says well all right well give it a try. And he puts this thing, and the entire crowd just lights up. You know, I mean, this is this is a guy who's very much like Jesus. And in my imagination, how Jesus would have related to just these people, these little ones who he really loved. So those elements are there, and of course, uh, he is accomplished. He, he did have that master's in chemistry. He did study in, in theology. He has not only a, a Argentinian uh, education. He, he certainly has an education from Europe as well. He's he's a remarkably accomplished man in that regard. Uh, really has had a huge uh, lifetime of experience as a superior and an administrator. Uh, he's no person's fool. And so um, uh, you can pretty much see that he does have a lot of, uh, you know, uh, Jesuit uh, characteristics. And uh, the best of the Jesuits and the best of the Ignatian spirit is really within him. I imagine that he has been a real point man for Jesuit vocations as well. Well, uh, what what would you tell uh, a man who's thinking of embarking on a religious vocation, and how would you sell him on the Jesuits? Well, you know, first of all, there's no doubt uh, that he has influenced an upsurge in vocations in the Jesuits. There's there's no doubt about that, and I I think part of it is is his example. Part of it is he appeals to the heart of younger people uh, who do want lives of service, and especially want lives of service uh, to the Majus, ad majorum dei gloriam. I, I think they they want that. So I think that's a, an appeal. But I think you know uh, Jesuits are are always looking for people who are going to be 
flexible and adaptable. We have these vows, uh, poverty, chastity, and obedience. And obedience, by far, to me anyway, is the toughest. I mean, can a person, you know, follow a superior's order to do the majas? And so uh, those are some of the things that uh, I think, you know, here Pope Francis exemplifies them uh, par excellence. And I think uh, we've got a real great example that we can play on uh, to raise vocations. Well, Father Robert Spitzer, thank you so much for being with us today. It's been a real pleasure having you with us. The pleasure is altogether mine. Any time you want me to to brag about uh, the Jesuits or Pope Francis or the Majest Institute again, I'd be happy to do so. So uh, uh, that's not uh, said in pride. Uh, uh, that's really said uh, as uh, I really feel like I'm uh, a companion with you in your ministry here uh, at uh, Immaculate Heart Radio. Well, wonderful. Please come back and visit us again soon. When we come back with our final segment, We'll be talking with Monsignor Mike Hare about one of the greatest spiritual writers of the 20th century. Please stay with us. Thomas Merton was a Trappist monk at the Abbey of Gethsemane in Kentucky who wrote more than 70 books in his 53 years, the most famous of which was The Seven-Story Mountain, an autobiographical work that detailed his personal spiritual journey and that was considered to be responsible for a post-war phenomenon that saw many military veterans, students, and others entering monasteries across the United States. This year, the church is celebrating the centennial of his birth in 1915. Monsignor Mike Hare is joining us. He is the pastor of St. Anne Church in Seal Beach, and he'll be talking with us about Merton's life and influence. Welcome. Thank you. What was so revolutionary about the Seven Story Mountain, and, and did it have an influence on you? Well, I think it, at the time it came out, it was very influential because it was just after the Second World War, and people were looking for values. They were longing for some way to understand their relationship with God. The world was changing in dramatic ways. And Thomas Merton wrote a, a story of conversion that people could identify with. Well, he wasn't a head-in-the-clouds mystic. He was passionate about social justice issues like the civil rights movement, the growth of nuclear arms, for example. Can he be seen as an example of a man both of God and in the world? Well, at the beginning, he thought that when he went to the monastery, that would be the end of him, and he wouldn't be heard from again. But that turned out not to be the case, because the more he prayed and the more he lived his monastic life, the more he realized how much in contact he was with the world and what was going on there. And so when things like civil rights came up and other things, I think his abbots wanted him to speak about pious things, but he felt that everything in life had to do with the spiritual life. And so these topics he responded to, and uh, he, sometimes he had trouble with the censors getting it through, but people then could understand, as they were feeling motivated by the civil rights movement and other things like that, that... That was part of them living out their spiritual life. 
Well, he was not interested exclusively in Catholicism or even Christianity. He studied Eastern religions, uh, particularly Zen Buddhism. How is that journey of his valuable to us today? He's giving us a perspective far beyond our usual. Well, I would say Thomas Merton was a man of enthusiasms. Whenever he would get interested in a topic, he would study it. He would want to. He would send letters off to people he'd read and ask them questions. And uh, as he went along, the study of Eastern religions, he realized, was something that could help him understand his own practice of contemplation. Although Eastern religions don't have revelation the way that we do, they do have spiritual practice. And what a monk would do in fulfilling the practice of being a monk he saw a connection with what was going on in the East, and so he was refreshed by those ties. It did not tempt him away from Christianity or Catholicism, did it? It, it enhanced it uh, in, in his uh, eyes. Absolutely. He, he uh, was always going to be a Catholic and always going to be a Christian. But in terms of prayer, he would take advice, uh, ideas from anyone he could find good ones, where he could find good ones. And he, uh, he lived on the grounds at Gethsemane in a very small—they uh, they called it a hermitage, I believe. Well, he spent, I think, about 25 years as one of the monks, but he was getting restive as a monk. At, at those days, they were living in big dormitories. And so uh, after a number of years of negotiating, the abbot allowed him to have a hermitage, but he would have to come up to— uh, the monastery to eat, and uh, the abbot was afraid that he would kind of get lost in space, so he wanted to have him grounded. But when he began his solitude in his hermitage, his spiritual life really blossomed, and it was exactly the right thing for him to do, I think, at that time. We have a, a quote that I'm not going to give you just yet, but uh, I want to save it for the end that, that very much speaks to that. But he died in 1968 in what I think could very much be uh, considered a freak accident. He was in Thailand, I believe. Yes. And he got out of a bath and was electrocuted by an electric fan. Yes. And, and that caused his death. Yeah, he was. He he's like me. He was a klutz. <laughs> he electrocuted <laughs> himself, and uh, he had been longing for a long time to make this trip to Asia to see for himself what he'd read about and and what he had heard and uh, read in the correspondence with some of the great masters. So, in some ways, it was a tragic loss. But in another way, it was like he had gone to the extent that he could go, and the Lord called him home. Well, one of the things that I think makes Merton, again, more accessible is uh, two years before he died, in 1966, uh, he had surgery to treat uh, a bad back. And when he was in the hospital, he fell deeply in love with the nurse assigned to take care of him. Now, he did not throw it all over for her. He did not leave the abbey. He did not uh, renounce his faith or his vows. But do you think that makes him more accessible to many people, the fact that he could feel that even at this time in his life? He was very popular before that happened. He had got people interested in the spiritual life and especially in contemplative prayer. At the beginning when this thing happened, there was uh, an effort on the part of the monastery to uh, keep word of it from coming out. But I think what had happened was something very deep in him that was uh, lost. 
he found in that relationship, he also wanted to to remain a monk. And so that became kind of a a time of crisis when he would have to decide which life he was going to lead, and ultimately he stayed in the monastery. Well, in 1949, the year after he wrote The Seven-Story Mountain, the book was a huge bestseller, and which surprised a lot of publishers and a lot of critics out there. But do you think Merton is an acquired taste, or do you think people tend to fall immediately in love with his works, depending on their spiritual outlooks. Is he is he very easy to comprehend, or is he something that you don't necessarily read for fun? What will I say? I would say he has a clear voice. You know, writers who are great writers have a clear voice. You show me something, and I can tell you if that was Merton or not. Or somebody trying to be Merton. Mm-hmm. He had a very clear voice, and it spoke to everyone. He tried to avoid very convoluted language. He had a very readable style. And I think that was the first place for his attraction. But also, he never tried to be exalted. When he described something, you could see it. You could feel it. You knew what he was talking about. And for anybody who's read spiritual books over the years, that's one of the things that is strikingly lacking in most spiritual books. They're much too too flighty, not practical, not down-to-earth, not what daily life becomes and how it works. Well, here's the quote I promised you. It is from the seven-story mountain, and it uh, definitely speaks to his life apart from the world, but yet in it. And here it is. We live in a society whose whole policy is to excite every nerve in the human body and keep it at the highest pitch of artificial tension, to strain every human desire to the limit and to create as many new desires and synthetic passions as possible in order to cater to them with the products of our factories and printing presses and movie studios and all the rest. It sounds as fresh and current today as when it was written in 1948. Do you think that is Merton's real legacy, his timelessness? He was naming what our world was becoming and has become. Now, how do you keep up? You have to check your cell phone for calls, for emails, for texts. You have your TV on, your radio on. You have instant contact with all these different things. You know, the advertisers no longer buy ads in newspapers. They send it directly to your email box. We are assaulted by activity. We're assaulted by sounds and sights. And the thing that saved him, and I think saves all of us in the end, is when we be quiet, when we go silent and let the Lord speak to us in the, maybe what we call nowadays, the subconscious. You know, if, if you start hearing exact words from God, you're either a prophet in the Old Testament or you're off your meds. <laughs> but that doesn't mean that silence itself doesn't uh, transform us by opening up our consciousness in a way that all of our activity uh, shuts down. Over the years, we've done many retreats uh, with young people, and I think, oh, they're going to they're gonna go crazy. And when you get them to be silent before the Blessed Sacrament, some of them are in tears. It's the only time they've had that experience. Merton taught us about that. If you've not read any of Thomas Merton, please go out and avail yourself of any of his 70 books. But please keep in mind The Seven-Story Mountain. It's his seminal work. 
Monsignor Mike here. Many thanks for stopping by to be with us today. You're welcome. Please come back soon. That is it for our show this week. I'd like to thank all of our guests and our listeners, as always. Please be with us every Thursday from 11 to noon here on Immaculate Heart Radio AM 1000. I'm Patrick Mott. <laughs>